Hi, I'm Brandon O'Brien from Redeemer City to City. In this series, Church and Outbreak, we're talking with staff and ministry partners around the country as we try to figure out together how to respond wisely and faithfully to the global COVID-19 pandemic. Beginning March 15th, many churches around the country and around the world were prohibited from gathering for weekend services. So church leaders scrambled to get their services online. Now more and more cities have shut down all but essential services. People everywhere are practicing social distance and the implications for ministry are huge. What should churches keep doing? What should they stop doing? What should they start doing that they've never done before? And how many of these changes are for right now and how many should be permanent? This episode is a little bit different. Instead of an interview, it's a word of encouragement from our founder and chairman, Tim Keller. He talks about how to find hope when the foundations we typically rely on crumble beneath us. Before Tim's devotional, there's a brief word of introduction from our CEO, Steve Shackelford. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. My name is Steve Shackelford, and I have the privilege of serving as CEO of Redeemer City to City. I'm very grateful for technology and how it's provided a way for us to be together. Thank you so much for joining us in this unusual time we're navigating. In just a moment, we're gonna hear from Tim Keller. As you may know, Tim and his wife, Kathy, started Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City in 1989. And Tim is chairman and co-founder of Redeemer City to City. In the mid 1990s, when pastors from the Netherlands and China heard how Redeemer Presbyterian Church was growing, and reaching urban professionals in New York, they reached out to Tim and they said, we wanna know what you're doing. We're able to start churches in the suburbs, but we aren't successful in planting sustainable churches in our cities. Will you help us? And that's how Redeemer City to City got its start. Tim stepped out of the pulpit in 2017 and joined Redeemer City to City full-time. For many years now, we've been helping local leaders and pastors start and strengthen churches all over the world to advance the gospel together in their cities. At Redeemer City to City, our vision is to see the gospel of Jesus Christ transform lives and impact cities. I'm so glad you joined us for Tim's devotional on Psalm 11, and we hope it'll be an encouragement for you. What a gift to be able to turn to scripture as we navigate these circumstances we find ourselves in. As Peter said in the book of John, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so we turn our gaze to our great Savior. May you experience his infinite grace and faithfulness today. Tim, I'm turning it over to you. Whenever you are in a time of stress, you should go to the Psalms. They have a medicine for everything. They depict every situation that a human being can be in. They depict every emotion you might have. And they also then tell you how to uh, process that before God. They tell you what to do about that emotion or about that situation. Probably the most famous of all the uh, Psalms on times of stress and fear, like we are in now with the virus shutdown. Uh, Economic fear, physical fear, fear for our health. Uh, There's probably no more eloquent Psalm than the more famous one that I'm Uh, the most famous of all the Psalms on fear, which is Psalm 46. God is a refuge and strength, a very helpful time of trouble. We won't fear, even if the mountains would fall into the midst of the sea, and so on. My favorite Psalm, because it's so short and practical for dealing with fear and distress, is Psalm 11. Let me read it to you quickly. It's short. Psalm 11. In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, 
flee like a bird to your mountain. For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord sits on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the, the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice and the upright will see his face. Now the situation uh, is not that easy to uh, ascertain. This is a Psalm of David. It starts off by saying it's of David. So David is speaking to his counselors and his counselors are saying, flee to the mountain, look the wicked bend their bows to shoot from the shadows. Uh, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? One of the reasons I like the Psalm so much is the first three verses are uh, the voice of panic. They, they give you words to the kind of fears that you might be feeling. Uh, we don't know quite what the situation is. Remember, David was a king. And it looks like there have been some kind of infiltration into his administration. Uh, they're saying, look, your enemies have somehow infiltrated. Uh, one of them might assassinate you. They might be actually in the palace. Uh, the social order, it's crumbling. Because the, it looks to me like, it, this is what the counselors are saying to David, it looks like that the, uh, the enemy has actually uh, been successful and they're going to overthrow you. So the foundations are being destroyed. And the word foundations here means the social order. That's, the, that's, a, that's what the term means. It's when you feel like the things that you need for a, uh, just an ordinary life, uh, economic things, so you know you can go to the store and get what you want. Uh, physical things, so you know that you're not in danger to go outside. Uh, when you are, uh, when, when the social order is strong, the foundations are strong and you actually get a normal life. But here, this, uh, this verse three says, the foundations are being destroyed. And what can we do? So let's just flee. And of course, times of plague, uh, times of war, uh, times of uh, coup d'etats and things like that, there are those are times in which the, uh, the social order seems to be shaken. Now, what's interesting here is if David leaves, he's the king, right? If David leaves, that only makes things worse. If the king flees, then, every, then the social order just collapses. And therefore, what David does, uh, as we, we will see, is he stays put. That's his way of honoring God and also loving his neighbor, because the most loving thing he could have done for his neighbors was to stay there and not just run away. So he doesn't panic. How does he do it? And verses four to seven give us three disciplines. I would call them disciplines of distress. Three things that uh, he calls us to do. And if we do them, I think we might be able to stay put too. Uh, we might be able to, uh, to stand, not panic, honor God and love our neighbor in the midst of uh, great disruption and great distress. Uh, so what are those three things? I'll name them like this. Uh, we must stop ruling the world we must start taking the tests and we must seek his face. Three things, stop ruling the world, start taking the test and seek his face. Uh, let's start with stop ruling the world. What do I mean by that? The, the, the difference between three and four is incredible. Uh, it's like a complete change of tone, complete change of atmosphere. Uh, first three is panicky. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can anybody do? And verse four, the Lord is on his heavenly throne. 
See, that's David speaking. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. Now, here's what he's saying. When we human beings think we are in control of the world, and then when the world gets out of our control, then we think the world is out of control, but actually it was never in our control. The foundations of the order of the world are the throne of God. God's got a plan, God is governing, God is ruling. It's always been the case. When I was a kid, I don't know if they do this anymore. When I was a kid, you could buy a little plastic steering wheel, a toy steering wheel, and then you could attach it to the car over the glove compartment so that when you were sitting in the car as a five or six year old and your father or your mother was actually driving it, you would sit there and you would you know, think you were driving the car. And modern human beings are very much like those children with that steering wheel. We think we're in charge. We think the reason why the world is moving forward is because we are in control. We're doing it well. We've got it sorted. We're doing it right. And what instead happens is uh, when it gets out of control, which it inevitably does during, during times of stress, or just like the one we're in right now, then we feel like it's out of control. And David says, no, no. Uh, God is on his throne. Romans 8.28 is a very famous passage, and it says, uh, all things work together for good to those who love God. It's, it's, it's thrown at people a lot when they're scared. Uh, it's more of a proposition and it's a truth, of course, but here's two places where that, that principle that God always has a plan and that plan is gonna work, whatever happens is happening for his own glory and our benefit long-term. That's what it says in Romans 8:28. Two places where you see that work out, case studies, which are a little, make it a little easier to see. Uh, one is in uh, Acts chapter four, 27, 28, where, uh, Peter says this, he says, he's praying, by the way, not preaching at this point. He says, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, that's a prayer that says when everything seemed to be falling apart. Remember, imagine you were one of the apostles. Imagine. Uh, you're one of the apostles, and uh, you think that Jesus is the Messiah, and he's going to be putting everything right, and you've seen him heal people and raise the dead, and you realize that he, he can do anything. He can really solve all our problems, and then you watch him being crucified and not doing anything, anything to stop it, and you watch him die. Your world falls apart, and it makes absolutely no sense, not at all, not at all. Uh, the wicked have bent the bow and shot the Messiah. And it looks like everything's out of control. And of course, what, what Acts 4 is trying to say is that, that uh, of course, it's easy for us to see because we have the whole Bible to explain it. But that terrible thing that happened, can you imagine people watching Jesus Christ being crucified and going home saying, I don't see how God could bring anything good out of this. Maybe they lost their faith looking at the greatest thing that God ever did for the salvation of the world. It was terrible, but it worked out, of course. And the fact is that every situation is like that. See, we have a, an entire book, it's called the Bible, that explains why that horrible tragedy happened. We do not have a book explaining why a particular pandemic happens or a war happens, or even just a tragic, a tragic uh, early death happens. We don't know. And yet, what we do know is God is on his throne. He's wiser than we are. You know, in other places uh, is, is Genesis 50, verse 20, where Joseph says to his brothers at the near the end of his life, their life, he says, 
you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. That's a very famous passage because if you read Genesis 37 all the way down to verse chapter 50, it's a long, long history. Everything goes wrong for Joseph and largely because his brothers sell him into slavery and then he's lied about and he goes into the dungeon and, and year after year after year after year, everything goes bad. But of course, in the end, it was how God was going to save not only Joseph, but his family and a lot of other people. And so uh, in the end, Joseph looks back and says, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Now, here's why I said, stop ruling the world. This is saying in verse four, the Lord is ruling the world. And when it seems to be out of control, it's not out of control. And uh, I'm thinking about the famous, uh, uh, the famous history of uh, the, fr the friendship between Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon. Luther and Melanchthon were friends of course, uh, they were both reformers. Luther was doing a very dangerous thing in starting the Reformation in Europe, starting the Protestant church. And Philip Melanchthon was younger than Luther. He was uh, smarter in many ways than Luther, at least he was more of a scholar. Uh, and he was also um, uh, a worrier. And very often he would be panicking. He would be saying, flee to the mountains. The Reformation is over, it's not gonna work. And uh, we're told that Luther would look at Melanchthon and say, let Philip, that's his name, Philip Melanchthon. Let Philip cease to rule the world. And let me tell you how I've used that in my mind, in my heart. When I worry, it's because I know that God's ruling the world, but I'm afraid he's not gonna get it right. Worry is always a deep sense in the human heart that we know better than God how life ought to go and that we, we should be ruling the world instead of God. And Luther defines worry as trying to rule the world and we're underqualified for the job. So the first thing is you have to stop on the world. Here's the second thing, start taking the test. Now, what I mean by that is if you stop here and just say, well, when there's fear and distress, just tell yourself God's got a plan. I've seen people use that to emotionally distance themselves from the suffering, from the fear. Uh, to basically short circuit it and not really let themselves feel it and not really learn what they should be learning from it. I do remember many years ago, uh, a young couple, um, uh, a young Christian couple, they were married, they hadn't been married very long and the wife was killed in an auto accident. And I do remember the husband afterwards walking around saying, I'm just, I know God's got a plan. I'm just trusting the Lord. No, I'm not that upset because I know God is working. He's got a plan. And he did that for about a year and then went into deep depression because he actually hadn't come to grips with, with, the, uh, with the sorrow. What's interesting here is it says, the Lord is on his heavenly throne. Then it says, he observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. And, and the, the terms there mean he's testing people. What that means is you don't just emotionally distance yourself. Whenever there's a, uh, whenever there's stress, whenever there's a, uh, a problem that, that overtakes you, Yes, you must stop ruling the world, but you can't emotionally distance yourself saying, well, I'm sure God's got something that he's trying to do. Yes, of course, he's got something he wants to do in you. And you need to come to grips with what's happening in your own heart. That is to say, all, uh, you might say, all disasters are tests, tests of you. There are ways for you to understand yourself, to grow in faith, to maybe put some uh, a finger on, on priorities that that maybe shouldn't be there. It depends on, uh, if you go through the Bible, you'll see that whenever troubles came on, um, God did different things with different people. 
there's a Jonah test. Sometimes trouble comes on you and it's a Jonah test because obviously Jonah uh, was a prophet, a preacher. And when God called him to go to Nineveh to preach, he didn't want to preach to those dirty pagans. So uh, Jonah had a racial attitude problem and God lets a lot of bad things happen to him to put his finger on something very specific. And sometimes troubles come on you. And I said, all troubles are tests. Uh, it's not enough just to distance yourself and say, oh, it, you know, God's working in it. Yeah, you should be looking at yourself. You should be asking yourself, what is God trying to say to me? Is there something I should be changing? Is there a priority I should change? Is there a sin I should stop doing? Or is, is there something too important to me? In 1991, when, when Redeemer was very new, there was a recession here and a lot of folks lost their job. A lot of young people who started coming to the church recognizing the fact that their career had become their God. And now that their God had died, they needed another God. And that's a Jonah test. But then there's the Job test. And Job is in, interesting because in Job, you've got God allowing terrible things to happen to Job. And Job starts looking around saying, well, is God trying to get me to repent for a sin. In fact, Job's friends think so too. They, Job's friends think, hey, you must, have been do, you must be doing something wrong here. And yet the, uh, the, the test for Job actually is uh, revealed in the beginning of the book when Satan comes to God and says, you like Job so much, but does he serve you for nothing? Does he really serve you and obey you out of love for you? Or does he really do it because you've just blessed him so much? And at the end of the book, even though Job has struggled enormously, and what, what's wonderful about the book of Job is it's okay to yell and, and grieve and cry out because Job does, and in the end, God vindicates him. But in the end, Job never finds out there's any one particular thing that he needs to be doing. Instead, what he's learned is how to love God for himself, how to rest more in God than anything else. Which, of course, when the troubles are over, means that you're a lot stronger than you've ever been before, a lot more stable, a lot happier. You know, have you heard the story about the lumberjack who went into a grove of trees and he was about to cut the trees down over the next couple of weeks? And he saw a mother bird trying to uh, uh, create a nest in one of the trees where she was going to lay her eggs and raise her young. Lumberjack knew that if she did that, then in a couple of days, she might, they might all die because somebody would come in and they would take the tree down. So what he did was he, he struck the tree and rattled the poor bird until she went to another tree. And then he followed her and he hit that tree and rattled the poor bird. I'm sure the bird was wondering what is the matter with this lumberjack. Finally, she flies up into a rock and starts to make her nest there. And the lumberjack says, okay. You see, every tree in this world is coming down. Anything you trust more than God, you will lose. In fact, even the mountains, Psalm 46 says, even the mountains are going to come down. Only God lasts, see? And the test always in every trouble is, find your rest in me. Uh, let my everlasting arms be under you, or you have no security at all. And the third thing, last thing. First, stop ruling the world. Secondly, take the tests. And then lastly, it says, the upright will see his face. Um, in, in the Bible, when it talks about seeking God's face, it doesn't just mean to pray. It means at least to pray, but it means something a lot more than that. You know what it means? It means communion with him. It means, it means intimacy with him. It means coming into his presence. It means a sense of his love and his reality on your life. Uh, Martin Luther 
uh, in his 40 page letter, which you can find online, How to Pray. Uh, he wrote it to his barber, How to Pray. He explains that meditation where you, you, you take, take a, the Lord's Prayer or, or a verse of the Bible and you meditate on it until you begin to sense God's reality. Find that. That's seeking his face. And you cannot get through troubles unless you do that. And here's how you, how you can do it. You notice it says at the very beginning of page uh, chapter uh, verse four, the Lord is in his holy temple. Psalm 27, David says, I go into the temple to see the beauty of the Lord. But you think about this. In those days, in the temple, yes, you could go to the temple, but actually only the high priest could go back to the Holy of Holies and be in the presence of God once a year because the sins of the people created a barrier between God and the people. So you might want to see his face. You might want that fellowship, but it really wasn't that available. And then Jesus Christ shows up. And it says, he says in John chapter two, when he goes into the money, into the temple and casts out the money changers, they say, well, what are you doing here? And he says, tear this temple down and in three days I'll build it up again. And he meant his body. And when he died, the veil in the temple, the barrier between God and humanity was ripped. Here's what Jesus is saying. I'm the bridge. I'm the temple. I'm the bridge between deity and humanity. I'm the high priest. It's my blood that has opened the way in. And now you can come right into the presence of God. I've punched a hole in that concrete slab that sin had created between you and God. And now through me, you can really see his face. You can know him. You can sense his presence. So go. John Newton has a little hymn. It ends like this. By prayer, let me wrestle. Then he will perform. With Christ in my vessel, I smile at the storm. Okay, let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for the Psalms. We thank you for this particular Psalm. And we thank you for its direction. And Lord, I can hardly imagine anyone who's not being affected. Almost anywhere, at least in our country, and in most countries of the world, by this uh, epidemic, this pandemic, this virus, uh, we're being affected in, in so many different ways. And uh, therefore, we are, uh, we're afraid. We are afraid. We get up and we look at so many things in the newspaper that creates fear. Help us to use these disciplines, these disciplines of distress. Show us how to stop ruling the world, to remember that you're on your throne. Show us how we should be examining ourselves as you are and letting this drive us more into your arms. Lord, troubles like this can just drive us like a nail more deeper into your love, and we pray that that would happen. And let us do that as we seek your face, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.